Need a break from the horrifying reality of real life? Well, do we have a sexy deal for you. Go to adamandeve.com and use our special code HORROR for 50% off almost any item and free shipping. That's H-O-R-R-O-R at checkout for 50% off and free shipping. Order now and get ready to... Think about it. Hello, everybody. Hi, friends. Welcome to episode 85 of I'm Horrified. Ooh, I love when it's a five or a zero. You know that. I know. It feels <laughs> it feels like so round. She's an accomplishment. But really, every day is an accomplishment. <laughs> I've always thought that every day is a winding road, and I get a little bit closer. You've thought that. Ori- yeah. Originally. Yeah, I was, I think, the first person to have that thought. Another thought I had just today was, um, like, every, every day is like a faded sign. Right. You can't play any musical instruments, right? No, not a one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just a poet, Allison. Yeah. No, I love Cheryl Crow. My favorite fact about you is that you used to be uh, a little bit of a drummer. I was. I was in my youth. Which I find hysterical, not because you're not a very talented woman. You you are. I don't I don't disbelieve that you have <laughs> talent. That I was but a it's talented more that it's But it's more that I've discussed on this podcast the subject of your baby hands. <laughs> The fact that Sam Bundich's hands are extremely tiny. I don't small think, hands. I don't think they're okay, small Okay, I'm going to stop hands. right there. Yep. <laughs> every, every one of our friends is in agreement. I know. That you have disproportionately tiny hands, I which know. is adorable. Um, or in, endearing, shall I say, is a less demeaning way to put it. Yeah, but no, that's a better you, way to refer to what you call my baby hands. <laughs> What the thought of you um, wielding a drum kit with those baby baby hands? How big do you think a drumstick is? It's very reasonable for for these slightly smaller than average hands. Uh, it's 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 a comical notion to me. Well, you know, Allie, when you say stuff like that, what it makes me think originally is my hands are small. I know. Oh God, <laughs> they're not yours. They are my own. And I'm, I'm glad that they're yours. <laughs> Thank you. Um, no, oh, I just man. sometimes you like put your fists up to fake fight me, and I burst I burst into laughter no the most the most roasted you ever roasted me was one time i was drinking one of those like mini seltzers and i offered you a sip and you took it from me and you were like oh i thought this was a normal size <laughs> seltzer because it was in your baby hands and i don't yes, I, I don't that. think you were joking no i wasn't i remember it was very funny after the fact because of how genuinely i was like wow a normal seltzer Oh, it was a... <laughs> it's a mini seltzer. It was a scale thing. And also a mini set of hands. Yeah. Anyway, you guys. Um, like the smartest, sweetest raccoon. <laughs> <laughs> wow, thanks. Um, yeah, you're welcome. Uh, anyways, this is Sam Buntich. I'm Allie Rayner. Sam is a woman I love and respect. <laughs> Yes. Say something mean about me. Never. You wouldn't. I would never do that. And it, what you just said isn't mean. It's just factual. It's just a fact. It's a thing that a cunty girl in high school <laughs> would say when she's like making fun of your fat thighs or something. You're ugly and that's not mean. Yeah. It's just true. <laughs> I'm sorry that people say so many things about your hands, <laughs> but I can't help it that your hands are baby hands. <laughs> um, no, I think that you would be very useful in like an Ocean's 8 scenario. You know, you're, oh, you're yes. working the ground game. I'm, I'm, People don't see, no. you know, they're shuffling cards. I can shove my little hands yeah. in your pockets. <laughs> I pull out the key to the safe. It's like when bank robbers would bring tiny children to like, you <laughs> know, get me. into the machinery. I'm like the tiny orphan you hire to yeah. steal something. You're like my Swiss army knife, Sam. Thanks, babe. More ways than one. More wow. ways than one. Um, but. Oh, man. <laughs> speaking of. <laughs> Speaking of that, uh, Sam, what are you going to talk about today? You said it was something sad. 
Yeah, it's very sad. Today I'm going to talk about the death of Tim Piazza, and if you don't know what that is, you're about to, and sorry. I don't know anything about it. Yeah, I'm sorry to talk to you about it, because it's yeah. very sad. But yeah, it's kind of a bummer, so it's a if bummer. you're not into that. And uh, what are you going to talk about today, Allie? I'm going to talk about something also death-related, but not too upsetting. Yeah. Maybe upsetting to some people, but I was going to talk about embalming. I'm excited to hear about this. Which isn't, like, on the surface terrible. No, it's not murdering anyone. No, um, but it's kind of nuanced and it's kind of macabre mm-hmm. and I've been watching a lot of Ask a Mortician, so Why I, not? you know, I was excited to do some research on that. Yeah. Maybe it'll be a palate cleanser after, after your story, <laughs> but maybe not. We'll find out. We'll see. <laughs> Woohoo. Oh gosh. Okay. Hi you've been, guys. You've been like dreading it all day. You're <laughs> I like, know. As soon as I picked this talk about topic, thing. I was like, oh no. Yeah. Okay. Hi guys. So today I'm going to tell a story and then ask and maybe try to answer a question. Uh, And I want to put a little content warning here at the beginning. Tim Piazza's death is a hazing-related death. So when you think about the details of a hazing-related death, namely binge drinking, peer pressure, and head injury, if any of that's going to be triggering to you... Skip this first part. I just wanted to let you know that that's listen, what we're talking about. Listen to one about. of our Tudor era history episodes. Yes. There's plenty There's plenty out there. There's plenty We've of other plenty episodes. We've done plenty of nonsense. Fast forward to embalming. Um, so like I said, the story of Tim Piazza is a story of hazing getting out of hand. Now, what is hazing? If you have to ask that question, good for you. I'm so glad <laughs> you for you. You never watched movies in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> but according to the National Collaborative for Hazing Research and Prevention at the University of Maine... Hazing is defined as any activity expected of someone joining or participating in a group that humiliates, degrades, abuses, or endangers them, regardless of a person's willingness to participate. And although this definition means it's possible to be hazed when joining any organization, it is most commonly associated with fraternities in colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. So now when I say fraternity throughout this story... I'm going to be referring to social, national, all-male fraternities. There are also many other kinds of fraternities. There are professional and service-oriented fraternities. There are religious fraternities. There are ethnic fraternities. There are co-ed fraternities. And of course, there are sororities, of which I was a member of one in college. And plenty of those have their own problems with their culture and specifically hazing. But the research shows that these problems are demonstrably higher in these social national, all-male fraternities. So that is what I am talking about today. That's what we're talking about today. That's the topic. It, or like, like, I guess like technically the Freemasons would be probably a fraternity or something. Yeah, like a lot a of... A gathering of brotherhood. Yeah, it's it, fraternities definitely come from like the Freemasonry movement, and then it was also just like kids in a college that were like, I would like to binge drink. Uh, and now we have the beautiful fraternity movement of today. Mm-hmm. I did. I googled like where fraternities came from, and it was because like... Back in the day, college was not supposed to be fun. Like, it was supposed to be, like, <laughs> very, like, arduous and, like, like um, I don't know, academic, for lack of a better word. And finally, like, there were some kids at one college that were like, what if we enjoyed ourselves? Yeah. And that was how I love started. how two millennials are like, did you know that back in the day, colleges were meant for academia? <laughs> Stupid. And a good time to to just remind everyone that you're listening to two acting majors right Absolutely. now. Absolutely. <laughs> the theater. The theater. The theater. Oh, What's goodness. happened to the theater? I'm so excited to watch White <laughs> Christmas this year. You've already watched it once this year. That's true. <laughs> Christmas is getting out of control. All right. We'll talk about that another time. We're talking about, what is it, social... 
national. <laughs> Social national we're not all male. not talking about Christmas right now. Fraternities. Not Christmas. All right. Now that we know what we're talking about, let's talk about Tim Piazza. So Tim Timothy John Piazza was born September 25th, 1997, meaning that he would have been a freshman when you and I, Allie, were seniors in college. Mm-hmm. So just to kind of put Younger his... Younger than us. Yeah. Just to kind of put his age in your brain. And so in his sophomore year at Pennsylvania State University, Oof. he decided... Yeah, there's a lot there. He decided to rush popular fraternity Beta Theta Pi. And he was ultimately given a bid, which means he was invited to go through a process known as pledging or new member education. And he showed up at the Beta Theta Pi house on February 2nd to start his first night as a pledge. Um, I'm also going to say, Al, please stop me if you're not familiar with any of these like very fratty terms that I say. I think I am. Well, I lived with you. Yeah, you, you lived with it. me as I was pledging. But I did think, um, I thought that, what is it? Um, rushing was pledging. No, they are different. So rushing is when you are wanting to get it into an organization. Yes. And then the organization says, yes, you may now pledge the organization. Yes. Well, I learned that because I went out for uh, the sorority you were in yeah. when I was a freshman. and it Which was I all, didn't go out for it, it at was, that point. Yeah, I think you came with me to some of the stuff because I was like, it was all like teas and like cupcake parties. Yeah. And I was like, oh, well, we go to like a super hippy-dippy school, so it must not be any of the crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. Not that I don't think you did anything super yeah. crazy. <laughs> Our school's frat culture was very like different. very, very different, very different much but, smaller. But, but I remember thinking, oh, that's the, that's where the bad stuff would go and it's not there. And then I didn't get in mm-hmm. um, and was like, okay, like I was kind of disappointed. And then I started seeing girls around campus wearing things and yeah. like doing rituals and like all this stuff. And I was very confused. And I was like, but I thought we didn't do that. But I didn't, I didn't understand like there's First you try out and they want you yeah. and then you're trying out for them and they want you want them. Yes. Like it's a that's kind of the process. I didn't really understand that. Yeah. It's a it's a weird long process that there's a lot there's a lot yeah. there. And like um, it's very different in like no two are alike yes. kind of. Yeah. So absolutely true. You make your own process. Yeah. Every organi- every Greek organization with different Greek letters has like a different right. rush right. and pledge process. So, before I get into the events of the night of February 2nd, I want to talk about the Penn State chapter of Beta Theta Pi. I'm sure they're lovely young men. (laughs) It was, to put it politely, a historically troubled chapter. Mm. Uh, In 2009, the National Fraternity, um, and just to explain that, every, these big fraternities, they have like a national body. And then, like, they're, at a university, it's called a chapter. So this was a chapter of Beta Theta Pi. And they reported to the big national Beta Theta Pi. Big Daddy Pie. Um, Big Daddy Pie. Uh, In 2009, the National Fraternity put the chapter on probation for consistently breaking the rules. The brothers kept breaking the rules, so then the National Fraternity converted the probation to a more serious interim suspension, which means that basically, like, they're kind of estranged from the National, but they can come back. Because they keep fucking up. Because they keep breaking the rules. Did that stop the noble brothers of Beta Theta Pi? No. Doesn't sound like (laughs) them to me. Nope. And so by the end of February uh, of 2009, the chapter was disbanded by the national organization. You'd think this would be the end of this problematic chapter, but it was not. Uh, and I'm quoting this next uh, bit from an article by Caitlin Flanagan for The Atlantic. She's done a lot of really excellent reporting on this story specifically and frats in general. I love The Atlantic. The Atlantic gives you like 
20 page yeah. in-depth things about something that you never knew about oh yeah they do excellent reporting I love this the way story they, they also this story they recorded on audio so i listened to it like a podcast really? the other day and then went back and read it again uh so this is from caitlin flanagan's article the public often interprets the closing of a fraternity as a decisive action in fact it is really more of a reopening under new management kind of process the national organization grooms a new set of brothers, a colony, and trains them carefully so that a bad behavior from the previous group will not be replicated. The first few years typically go very well. Indeed, not two years after the Penn State chapter of Beta Theta Pi reopened in the fall of 2010, so it was disbanded for a year, uh, it won the Sisson Award, one of the highest honors the national fraternity can confer. But just as typically, the chapter reverts to its previous behavior. Alumni visit their old house and explain how things ought to be done. Private Facebook groups and group me chats are initiated among brothers of different chapters. And information about secret hazing rituals is exchanged. By the time, or this time, when the brothers of the newly reconstituted beta chapter reverted to this type and started hazing, the national organization did not intervene. So that's bad. You might be wondering, how are the Beta Brothers so bad at this? How do they keep getting caught? Yeah, I am very much wondering, what is it that they were doing? <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, so caught. what they're doing is just binge drinking and hazing, which, well, very bad, obviously. They're certainly not the only fraternity. and no, Almost definitely no. not the only fraternity at Penn State that was doing that. So why is it the Beta House that keeps getting yeah, called they out on this? keep getting caught. It's because the house itself is very special. In 2004, Beta alum and very successful real estate investor Donald Abbey visited the Beta house and could not believe the squalor the young men were living in. <laughs> now, for those of us who have ever been to a frat house, we know they are disaster areas um, because kids live in them for roughly three years with uh, the only goal to trash the place. Mm -hmm. And then they move on and another generation of kids move in with the only goal to trash the place. Just so sticky. That's yeah. all I remember from college is like... Why is everything so sticky? Yeah. But so Donald Abbey decides this will not do. And he invests $8.5 million in the <gasps> most extensive renovation of an American fraternity house in history. Oh, my God. The bathrooms have heated floors. There are two kitchens and they have copper ceilings. The tables are hand-carved mahogany imported from Columbia. The entrances have biometric fingerprint scanners. It is fancy at the beta house. And the brothers continue to just fucking trash it. <laughs> Yeah, why would you give it? Because give he, that beautiful house to those animals. Because he was a beta and he loved the betas. So he was like, I got to make sure they live in a house. He was a beta bitch. He was a beta bitch. He really was. But the fact that the brothers are not treating this new gorgeous house nicely infuriates Donald Abbey. What did he think? All right, I'm going to let it go. <laughs> like, what did he think was going to happen? But so what he does to try to curb this, um, to curb their enthusiasm, yeah. is that he installs security cameras all over the public rooms of the house. Oh. There are at least like 14 security cameras throughout this frat house. And the brothers continue to misbehave. It gets caught on camera and they keep getting in trouble with the national organization and with the college because they can just pull the tapes and be like, this was you binge drinking. And the brothers are like, it was. Because you have it on tape. I wouldn't want to live in a place with security cameras. Yeah, it's weird. It was only in the public rooms, so, like, it wasn't in the bedrooms, but it was Still. in, like, the living room, the kitchen, the basement, those, the hallways, you know. Yeah, but that was, like, the trade-off you were making to live in this very Gorgeous glamorous, house. okay, very glamorous frat house. So, all that background brings us to the night of February 2nd, 2017, when Tim Piazza arrives for his first night of pledging. 
He and the other pledges are told to do something called the gauntlet, where they basically binge drink vodka, beer, and wine, and then do an obstacle course within the house, the security cameras recording all the while. According to this footage, about an hour after the gauntlet begins, the pledges return to the living room, all of them showing signs of drunkenness. At 10.40 p.m., Tim appears in one of those security cameras, assisted by one of the brothers. A forensic pathologist will later describe his level of intoxication at this point as stuporous. Oi. Tim appears to be trying to leave the house. He heads towards the front door, but he is too intoxicated to undo the lock. Then he turns around and he notices another door behind him. That door is to the basement, which Tim does not realize, and so he steps through it and falls down a flight of concrete stairs, landing on his head. So in the security footage, you can see fraternity brothers notice that this happens. They're pointing to the stairs. One brother clearly hears what happens and goes to the stop of the stairs to see see what's going on. And he later tells the police that he saw Tim face down at the bottom of the steps. The brothers had a group text that night and one sent the text, quote, Tim Piazza might actually be a problem. He fell 15 feet down a flight of steps, hair first, going to need help. So that's on the group text. So all the active brothers know what just happened. Unfortunately, my definition of getting help for Tim Piazza and the brothers' definition are a little different. Four brothers carry Tim back up the stairs and place him on a couch. They're clearly from the video trying to see if he's injured or just very drunk. Uh, And he's pretty clearly injured. He's bleeding and there's a weird bruise forming on his abdomen that the coroner will later discover was his spleen rupturing blood inside his body. Oh my god. And the brothers keep, they like pick up one of Tim's arms and it falls down and then they, you know, throw his shoes at him and he doesn't have a response and then they slap his face and he doesn't move. So then they strap a backpack onto him so he won't fall over and vomit into his mouth and they kind of just leave him on the couch. At this point, uh, a brother named Cordell Davis comes in. Uh, It is notable that Cordell is one of the only people of color in Beta. And so he is very obviously gesturing to Tim's head and looks agitated on the video. He is trying to convince everyone that, of course, Tim needs to go to the hospital. He had fallen on his head. Oh, my God. They need to wake him up immediately and call 911. In response, another brother rises from the couch and shoves Cordell into the opposite wall. And Cordell says he was saying that they had it under control. So Cordell then seeks out the vice president of the chapter to say hey, Tim's really fucked up. Like, you, we have to call 911. This man is the only hope that this guy had of living yeah. at this point, if he was even still alive. I know. And according to the court hearing, uh, the camera captures Davis gesturing once more, referring repeatedly to his head and pointing at Timothy. And Davis testified that the VP told him he was crazy and claimed the other brothers were kinesiology and biology majors. So Davis's word meant nothing to them when compared to theirs. Cordell Davis then leaves. So he was basically told, like... Tim's a kinesiology major, so if he's not worried, I don't know why you're fucking worried. Well, they're probably all fucking shit-faced. Yeah. Also. Of course they are. And they don't want to get in trouble. Oh, my God. The cameras now show Tim twitching and vomiting. The brothers are coming in and out of the room, and they seem annoyed with him. They occasionally slap his face or the dark bruise on his abdomen. 45 minutes later, Tim rolls onto the floor. The heavy backpack is still strapped to him. He attempts to stand up. He manages to free himself from the backpack. But he falls backwards, banging his head again against the hardwood floor. Oh my god, he was still alive. Yeah, he's still alive. Fraternity members then shake him because he just kind of passed out again, but they get no response. At 3.49 a.m., remember his initial fall was 10.40 p.m., Tim wakes up again and struggles to his knees, cradling his head in his hands. He falls again to the hardwood floor. 
An hour later, he manages to stand up. He tries to get to the front door, but he falls again headfirst into an iron railing and then onto the floor. At 7 a.m. Oh my so God. it is now the morning. 12 hours. Yeah. Another pledge wanders into the living room where Tim is now lying on the couch groaning. And the pledge watches as he rolls off the couch and onto the floor. And he's cradling his head. And the pledge said it was like he had a really bad headache. And so the pledge lifts his cell phone, records Tim on Snapchat, and then leaves the house. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. He thought he was really hungover. A few minutes later, Tim stands and staggers towards the basement steps, and he then disappears from the camera's view. Um, So again, this is from Caitlin Flanagan's story from The Atlantic. At about 10 a.m., again, he fell at 10.40 p.m., a brother asks a pledge a question that seems to both of them a casual one. Whatever happened to that pledge who fell down the stairs at the party? They come across Tim's shoes, realize Tim must be somewhere in the house, so they look for him. The search reveals him collapsed behind one of the bars in the basement. He's lying on his back with his arms tight at his sides and his hands gripped in fists. His face is bloody and his breathing is labored. His eyes are half open. His skin is cold to the touch. He is unnaturally pale. Three men carry him upstairs and put him on the couch, but no one calls 911. Fraternity brothers appear with garbage bags in the footage and start cleaning up the evidence. Brothers try to prop Tim up on the couch and dress him, but his limbs are too stiff and they can't do it. Someone wipes the blood off his face and someone else tries without luck to pry open his clenched fingers. Clearly, the brothers are trying to make a terrible situation appear a little bit better for when the authorities arrive. But they do not use their many cell phones to call 911. Instead, one brother uses his phone to do a series of internet search for terms such as cold extremities in drunk person and binge drinking, alcohol, bruising, or discoloration, cold feet and cold hands. Finally, at 10.48 a.m., a brother calls 911, perhaps realizing it would be best to do so while the pledge is still technically alive. Oh, my God. I'm so furious right now. So Tim Piazza dies the next day in the hospital. Um, His father asks the surgeon, like, if they had gotten him there any sooner, would it have made a difference? And the surgeon is like, yeah, of course it would have made a difference. Um, Some of the Beta brothers are found guilty of hazing or furnishing alcohol to a minor, but all manslaughter charges are ultimately dropped. Are you fucking kidding me? I know. And apparently in the court, they like fist bumped when the charges were dropped, which is just... Ugh. And Tim Piazza's parents were there every day of the court hearing, so they had to just like see that. Watch. Yeah. Oh my God, this poor boy. It's like a nightmare story. It is horrible, and it's even more so because it is all on film. So I think that is why like... It really hits home. Hits home is because like you can see like they haven't released the footage publicly, but there are descriptions of minute by minute what was happening. Them making these negligent, horrible decisions. Yeah, exactly. And so I think this story and many other stories beg a question. Why do fraternities still exist? It seems like if I was a university, I would hate frats. I would hate what a crazy liability they are. And therefore, I would just be like, no, I'm not doing frats here anymore. But that is obviously not what's happening. Yeah. So why is that? Uh, And to that question, there is a nice answer and there is a not so nice answer. So I'll start with the nice one. Because we just love nice things here on this podcast. That's why I'm telling this story to you. That's what we're all about, yeah. Um, So the bad things that happen with frats, the binge drinking, the hazing, the high risk of sexual assault for women in frat houses, the death. They're obviously all very, very bad, but they are the minority of things that happen within fraternities. 
Rats often do good for the school and the community by creating student leaders and doing charity work. Many frats have mandated volunteer hours that the brothers have to do, and that is great. Frats are meant to form fraternal bonds between men, and God knows we all want men to feel emotionally safe and supported. Yes. If a frat can do that for someone, that is great. A 2014 Gallup survey of 30,000 university alumni found persons who had been members of Greek letter organizations, so that's fraternities and sororities, reported having a greater sense of purpose, a better social and physical well-being than those who had not. Studies have found that university graduation rates are 20% higher among members of Greek letter organizations than among Mm non-members. And students who are members of fraternities and sororities have typically higher than average grade point averages, mostly, or not mostly because, perhaps because many of the members have like to, to maintain a certain academic standard. So it's motivating to them. Yeah. And if you have like people to study with and all that kind of stuff, it's, it's good to be in a community in, in every facet. And the connections. Many people join frats for the alumni connections that they get out of them once they leave college. Since 1900, 63% of members of the United States cabinet have been members of fraternities and sororities. And the current chief executive officers of five of the largest 10 Fortune 500 companies were a member of a fraternity or sorority. Like 85% of all justices of the U.S. Supreme Court since 1910 have been members of frats. 25% of the U.S. House of Representatives since, like, 2013. 40% of the U.S. Senate. Like, if you are interested in that kind of career, it is really valuable for you to get those connections. So those are all the nice reasons frats are sticking around. Right? That universities are choosing to keep them around. Exactly. That they're genuinely good and helpful to people. Here's the not-so-nice reason. It's money. I'm much shock. <laughs> I know. So the existence of frats solve three big problems for universities. Namely, how do we get kids to want to come here? Where are we going to put all these kids? And how are we going to keep these kids engaged and donating long after they've graduated? Universities depend on new tuition-paying undergrads to function and expand. They can show a kid a state-of-the-art lab and an exciting professor, and that will work for some kids. But for most kids, and especially the really affluent kids who will not qualify for scholarships and will therefore pay full price, they want to know that they can fucking rage all four years of college. Yeah. So the rich, the rich dumb kids yeah. want to know there's a fraternity there. So driving down a really thriving Greek row is a really great way to get those kids interested when they visit the campus. And when you have a really strong fraternity culture, that's like a built-in social calendar for your whole school. Not even just the kids who are in the frats, but all the kids go to the frat parties. Yeah. And it becomes like all the social stuff in your school is taken care of by these other organizations. Right. So, like, all these kids then immediately want to join, especially if their super affluent dad was also in a frat. (laughs) Why wouldn't they want to join? So then the kid decides to go to your university. Where are you going to put them? Will they have to pay money to upkeep a dorm, provide toilet paper, clean up when kids throw up all over the floor? No, because Greek houses will take care of that. These houses are owned not by the universities, but by like the National Fraternal Organization or a trust that's been set up by the alumni, which means that kids want to live there and willingly take themselves out of the housing pool. And then the university never needs to spend another cent on these kids. Right. I didn't think about that. Yeah. It, it really is, like, that's a big problem when they close frat houses, is, like, rehoming all those kids. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and now the kid has graduated and they're super successful. And God, the university just knows they could be giving $2,500 a year or maybe $100,000. or Maybe they could even give a million and endow something. But how do we keep this kid interested in the school that they graduated 10 years ago? Do we tell them about current students need of, in need of aid? Do we tell them about new classrooms? Do we tell them the knowledge that, you know, the, the university's good ethics are being passed to the next generation? That's what gets me excited. No, they don't care about that. Yeah. All their best memories of college are not the classes, they are the people, and specifically the fraternity brothers they had all their funnest times with. Studies have shown that frat alumni are more generous to their universities than non-Greek life alumnuses. And if you close that frat, alums get furious and they start donating to the national frat instead of the school. And the school will get like letters that will be like, I was a member of Beta and I'm furious that Beta's not on campus anymore. Right. Send. Send tweet. <laughs> and that guy could be like a millionaire who could endow a million scholarships. Yeah, exactly. So you don't want to make him mad. Um, this reminded me, this point reminded me of a really interesting thing. In Caitlin Flanagan's story, she talks to Judd Horace, who is the CEO of the North American Interfraternity Conference and an alumni of Beta Theta Pi himself. His name is Judd. His name is Judd Horace. Um, he's not an alumni of the Penn State Beta, but of like okay. a Beta chapter. And so Caitlin is trying to dig into what's happening at these pledge events and specifically in texts by the Beta Brothers that had been released in the presentment of the case of Tim Piazza's death, they had been referencing something called the Shep Test that she knows is theoretically outlawed by the National Beta Organization. So she wants to figure out like exactly what that was. So she's talking to Judd Horace, and this is their conversation as told in her article. I asked Judd Horace why no one at Beta Theta Pi had done anything about all the bad behavior those cameras must have recorded over the years since the reopening of the chapter. He said that no one could be expected to watch every single minute of film. He said that at some point you have to trust young men to make the right decisions. What Beta Theta Pi had done for him as a young man, he suggested, was allow him to make some poor decisions until he started to turn around and become the man he wanted to be. Giving members the freedom to do that was part of what the fraternity was all about. If they screwed up and got caught, well, that was on them. And as for the death of Tim Piazza, well, it constituted, quote, a tragedy for him and his family, it would provide the industry with the impetus needed to make some necessary reforms. In fact, his death was a, quote, golden opportunity. No, nope. Fuck you, Judd. Back to Caitlin's story. Then I asked Horace about the Shep test and why it endured, despite the effort that had gone into eradicating it. He interrupted me. Wait a minute. That test doesn't happen anymore. We have testimonials instead where pledges can... But it's in the presentment, I said, and he looked at me, baffled. One kid asks where the pledges were, and the other says they're waiting in the boiler room after the Shep test. It was clear in that moment, as he affirmed in a later email, that Horace had not read the presentment very closely. In my notebook, I wrote... Long pause, long pause, long pause. And finally, he said with consummate feeling, I'm fucking mad that, that stuff is going on. What is it? That they're still doing the chef test. What is the chef test? Uh, I'll tell you as soon as I'm done Oh my God, that's, I'm like, what does this mean? And then I realized why Horace was able to see the torture and death of a 19-year-old kid as a golden opportunity. He didn't really know that much about it. I started to ask him another question, but for a few moments he seemed lost. Am I just fighting for a bunch of idiots? He asked. Yes. Yeah. So the chef fighting test. Fighting for a bunch of murderers. Yeah. 
So she, when she looks into it, the chef test appears to be just a, a, a like a trivia night of beta trivia that is interspersed with like mind games. So like they hold a, a poker really close to you and you think you're going to get branded, but you're not. And you're really drunk, you're binge drinking, and you're having to answer questions about, you know, when was beta founded? You know what I mean? That kind of thing, Mm -hmm. which is clearly horrible, but like not the worst thing that has happened at a frat party. Okay. But the beta organization had made a huge effort to eradicate it and like had specific, the only thing like you can easily find on the internet about it is like a statement from the beta organization that's like, we do not condone the Shep test. It's awful. It does not match our values, period, as an organization. So the fact that he didn't read the presentment close enough to see that they're still doing it, and then is, like, so devastated. I find that really interesting. Yeah, maybe he went through it. I'm sure he did. And he's so taken aback by this fact. And his final question of, am I just fighting for a bunch of idiots, is, like, so interesting to me. That like, Yeah. He's just been so disarmed by this. And so fraternities continue on, largely unchecked. About one kid a year has died in a hazing incident since 1969. Oh, my God. And I haven't even spoken on this podcast about the higher rates of sexual assaults in and around fraternity houses. But studies have shown time and time again that frats are not safe places for women. Also, when it comes to frats, there is a crazy high rate of slip and fall injury and death because no one puts safety railings on anything. Of course not. That's just an interesting thing from another article I read is someone listed out like all the slip and fall injuries that had happened to frats. And mm. there's like a bajillion. So what do we do? Clearly, the fraternity system needs to be reformed. Arguably, it needs to be reformed so greatly that it may as well be abolished so we can start from scratch. But then again, a lot of people I know were in frats and reaped all those benefits I talked about. They volunteered more and were more motivated to get good grades. They formed tight social bonds with people they might not have met otherwise. They enjoyed their frat experience and they want others to have an experience like it. And that's all legit and great. But I think as we learned from Judd Horace, your personal experience with something is sometimes different than the good or bad it is doing in the world. It's mm, a good point. You know what I mean? Like just because you had a positive experience with a frat or an internship or, you know, going to Like we to talked place, about with our, um, with our unpaid internship. Exactly. That's what, what I thought of too. Did. That it's like, just because it was good for you doesn't mean it is good to continue. Doesn't and it doesn't it mean good. it's good on the whole. Yeah. Yeah. And that's hard. And that sucks because you're like, but I want kids to have the experience I had, which is, you know, with my internship, I learned a lot and I made mm-hmm. great professional connections. And clearly with Judd Horace, he got his life on track because he was yeah. a member of this frat. He wants to defend them. But then he finds out what they're really doing. Right. And what's there that's worth defending. I don't know. Um, my only suggestion is let's abolish frat houses. If you want to party, do it in an older brother's apartment where he's worried about the security deposit. Yeah. Um, it seems to <laughs> Put be n- some accountability in there. Yeah, it seems to me nothing good happens in a shitty old house where the purpose is to rage and be able to get women alone in a room. Um, but I'd love to hear from you guys on this. If you have experience with frats, if you totally don't, Tim's story is so sad. It's so horrible, and it could have been so easily stopped. And I think it's just so emblematic of the problems with these kind of old fraternal organizations where protecting the frat is more important than any one member. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it's like, are these worth saving? Should frats exist? Can I ask you a question? Yeah. You can can get rid of this if you're not comfortable with it. I'll cut it. I understand. Does that extend to sororities for you? 
I think in a lot of ways, yeah. So I think my sorority experience, right? Like this is what we were just talking about. My sorority experience was positive, but it was positive because I went to a really small liberal arts college. Mm -hmm. My sorority only exists at my college. It's not a big national organization that had these like big weird rules and traditions. Um, It was at a university that was really accepting and was all about kind of, you know, change. And it it did change its policies around pledging a lot while I was there. Yeah, I remember that. And so my sorority was good, right? But I don't know that sororities on the whole are good. And you also, your experience was good. Somebody else could have had a really bad experience. Yeah, absolutely. And you wouldn't maybe necessarily know And I wouldn't know, so... Like I said, it seems like like the the places that are the 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 red blinking badness are these social all male right. national frats, but these problems trickle down. And I think that I think there's an argument for yeah abolishing the whole Greek life system. I do, and just because I had a positive experience with my one sorority doesn't mean that's not still true. Unfortunately. I wish every sorority was like mine. And I wish every fraternity was like mine. Yeah. But I also think that, like, the And things... every experience was like your experience. Yeah. It, it isn't. But, like, I know and love and respect you and you had a good experience in yeah. a sorority. So that's evidence to the fact that it's not about the sorority. It's about, you know, what's... Who's running it and who's involved in it. But there is a little bit of the flip side of the the template of it can sometimes lead to really negative things happening. Yeah, so it it's, really can. it's it's a lot. It's both. It's all. <laughs> I went so long. I'm so That's sorry. That's fine. I had no idea I went that long. No, I, this is a really interesting. I'm interested. Sorry, in I this. just looked over and I was like, what? I'm really interested in this. Yeah. This is interesting. And it's also like this gets to the heart of our show, which is it's it's upsetting, but we're not exactly sure why. Yeah. Like, you know that, like, you know, I think that's something that we like to talk about a lot. Like, that's something that some of our favorite conversations, my favorite conversations with you have been, I don't like this, and I'm concerned, and I'm scared, and now I'm anxious, but I can't exactly put my finger on why that is. Yeah. Is it because this isolated incident is a problem? Is it because... I've never really liked the idea of Greek life in general. Mm. Is it because, you know, I associate frats with rape? Yeah. <laughs> which is which is how a lot of people associate them. Yeah. Which Whether again, or not like, that's fair. Well, which again, like, I didn't even t- really we didn't touch even on get here. into that. Yeah. But there, I mean, studies have shown that there is a, like, it's a risky place for to be a young woman in a yeah. frat. And I think that uh, the thing that I've learned is that, like, when... When you get to a a situation that's that complicated but upsetting and you don't have a clear answer, we just have to keep talking about it. Yeah. You have to keep talking about it and and hearing new experiences mm-hmm. and bringing in more information um, until you reach something that's going to make the world better. Yeah. So, so thank you for sharing this story. Thank you for sharing your perspective. It was really interesting um, yeah. and something that we should think about. And, yeah. and college students should think about. Yeah, definitely. Please do. Um, but it is, like you said, I would love to hear, I would love to hear, especially from people who are in frats or sororities right now or have mm-hmm. been or who have had experience with any of this stuff or people who haven't I'm really open to anyone. But like, it would be interesting to hear from you guys about what you think about this. Yeah. I would really, I really want to hear other people's thoughts about this. So please tweet at us um, or email us or whatever about this. But yeah, that's, 
that's this story, um, horrifically sad. Mm. Um, and really, really makes you think. I've thought a lot about this since I, since I started on this. I've read a lot of articles and thought a lot about this. I didn't, I didn't really know that much about it. Yeah. Um, but anyway. But anyway. All right. So we could go on and on for ages. And yeah. And this is already going to be a very long episode. So some of you are excited about that. Some of you are like, I remember once we got a comment, like, I wish these were 90 minutes. And I'm like, you, sir, I like you. Yeah. Sir, you might be about to get your wish. Ooh. Oh, um, no. <laughs> it's finally happening for you. Let's talk about something else. Embalming. Woo! Embalming. Spelled E-M-B-A-L-M-I-N-G. Yes. Like lip balm, which is something you don't want to think about. No. <laughs> Not like I thought when you said it across the room. I was like, what are you going to talk about this week, Al? And I thought you said bombing. Like a bombing. <laughs> it's like, oh, not right. this week. You, it could have been on, on this show. Hope but. springs eternal. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, this week I'm going to take yet another page out of Caitlin Dowdy's book, who, as we know, as I've said, is the genius death positive queen behind the YouTube channel Ask a Mortician. Um, and she inspired my episode about the Capuchin Catacombs. And another one, I think, I can't remember. <laughs> but She inspired like, my episode about uh, the Mount Washington disaster. That's in the one, yeah. yeah. Um, we could do an episode about every single one of her videos. And like, maybe later we will. Yes. If you like death, death-related things, general macabre, you will love her channel. Also, I've been really enjoying her book, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. Oh, fun. So I've really been enjoying that. So let's start it with some history. And then we'll talk methods of modern embalming. Ooh. And then we'll get into some ethical questions. Ooh, which, ethical. as you know, my favorite kind of questions. Yeah. Um, so I didn't really put this together. <laughs> and then I read this and I was like, oh, yeah, duh. And I'm thinking, like, this is really obvious. But where do you think some of the first embalming started? Egypt. You just got that out of thin air. Did you look at my Google Doc? No, I didn't. I just love Egyptology. I, just, I literally, I was like, embalming, like, when would that even have started? <laughs> Duh, mummies. It's different a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of it. Oh, yeah. But, um, yeah, that's right. Um, mummification was an early embalming practice of sorts. Um, and there were also mummification practices happening around the same time in, like, Chile and Peru for different cultural reasons around the same time. Uh, but we know a lot about mummification practices because those Egyptians... Truly excellent at the written text. They, they loved do. it. They loved to write it down. And we appreciated it. <laughs> so basically what they did was take out, like, guts and brains. <laughs> Medical terms. Um, <laughs> you know, and then guts. soak the banana peel of a body that they're left with <laughs> in what was basically salt. And just dehydrated the body. Mm -hmm. um, because, well, now I guess I should define what embalming is, right? <laughs> I thought we'd get to it naturally. I wouldn't start with it. But... Why did they do this? Because embalming is this. Um, embalming is basically just the process, both creative and scientific, of preserving a body and warding off natural decomposition. Mm -hmm. So salt promotes dehydration. Dehydration keeps moisture and bacteria from growing and decomposing a body. There you go. Um, and it's different from taxidermy. <laughs> oh, yes. Very. Because taxidermy, I think, is just like skins of an animal and like all yeah. the organs are removed this is meant to halt the decomposition process yes um for a variety of reasons um so yeah the egyptians are chipping away at their stuff <laughs> i read somewhere like they embalmed like 400 million people and i'm like that can't possibly That's be right so there many. haven't been 400 million people in the, the universe history <laughs> right um remember acting majors um but yeah so they did that mostly for religious purposes um, they, they believed you needed to be whole so that your body was whole, so that the soul could return to it, and you could go on your post-life journey. That's very simplified, mm -hmm. but 
that was basically what we all learned in school. And also because they believed that the decomposition of bodies and like the rot of bodies would lead to diseases being spread by those bodies, mm-hmm. which is kind of true, but it was really more a question of hygiene than yeah. anything. Um, I don't think they were being barely hygienic with yeah. their decomposing bodies. So what are you going to do? But yeah, like I said, other communities were doing this in South America, parts of Africa, and then like the Babylonians would put dead people in honey or Ooh, something. Sweet. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like a spa treatment. <laughs> it's so extra, but not a bad way to go if you get to go. Yeah. Um, so after these more ancient practices, which again happened in a variety of ways, variety of methods, we don't have time. <laughs> Embalming took a breather mm-hmm. for multiple thousands of years. We were like, we're over it. Yeah, Christianity started getting in the mix. Um, and Christians were not into embalming really at all. So interesting. Um, and neither were Jews, for that mm-hmm. matter. They agreed on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but along the way, there were a lot of discoveries that set the stage for embar- embalming. And now I want to say that I got a lot of this information from the Barton Family Funeral Services website. They're in Seattle, and they just have this, like, rinky-dink website but they put an amazing amount of work into wow. the historical section of their website. If you're dying in Seattle. I know. I trust them implicitly. I just had such a soft spot for this <laughs> funeral home who really took, like, funeral history, embalming history under their wing and, like, created this resource. Wow. That was sweet. Oh, my God. Um, so they put kind of together a timeline of significant scientific accomplishments that led to modern embalming, the mm-hmm. things we needed to do. Um, so the first was... Da Vinci's anatomical plates as a result of his dissections of the human body. So that helped to uncover, um, like, the artery system. Yeah. (laughs) Which became very important for Mm -hmm. later embalming. Um, Dr. Frederick Reich, I'm definitely not saying that right, um, in the 1700s, he was considered the father of embalming with his discovery of the first successful arterial embalming. So he was the first one to use the arterial artery system oh. to embalm a body. Interesting. In a not awesome way. Ooh, <laughs> Didn't yes. do a great job. Um, Dr. First William, try. Yeah, Dr. William Harvey was the English physician who discovered the circulation of blood. Mm-hmm. So that blood moves around in the arteries. Um, Dr. William Hunter um, was the first to successfully adopt arterial injection as a means of preservation. So at first they were just like, oh, what's going on with all this? Um, but so he started doing injections. Um, Jean Gunnell, um, 1800s, um, he was the first to offer embalming services of various types to the French public. Ooh. Um, and then, oh, this is toughy. Still 1700s. Anthony Van Leeuwenhoek. Ooh. Maybe Dutch? I would guess. Maybe Dutch? Yeah. Leeuwenhoek. Leeuwenhoek. I Almost lived in the Netherlands Dutch. for several months. But I live I in upstate New York where a lot of things are Yeah, that's are very Dutch. true. Um, he manufactured the microscope. Oh, that's helpful. And discovered bacteria. And then... He was busy. Alexander Butlerov and Wilhelm von Hoffmann, which sounds like two funny names that we would come up with. Yeah, that sounds like during an improv when you know you have to, like, the word is Germany. Yeah. Um, in the 1800s, uh, discovered formaldehyde. Um, and Dr. Thomas Holmes, our last guy, is generally considered the father of modern embalming. And he experimented with preservative chemicals while working as a coroner's assistant and then was led down the road of embalming. Yes. Um, so let's, let's, let's div- dig into him a little bit. Uh, modern embalming starts being more of a thing around the Civil War. Sam, why do you think that might have been? Because so many people are dying. 
and far from home. There we go. <laughs> they need to get back. Yes. Many young men were dying for their country, and it would take a long time to get their bodies back to their families. So that's extremely sad, but that posed a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dr. Holmes took back up the mantle of arterial embalming. Um, and by that, I mean not just drying out bodies with salt, but kind of <clears throat> starting to really mess around with different chemical substances and seeing how other people had done in the past and started to really streamline the arterial embalming process. Um, So he would do this by injecting a solution of disinfectants and arsenic into the blood system at first by way of the arteries. Now, arsenic is actually an effective method of embalming a body. But it will kill the embalmers (laughs) awfully quick. Yeah, that's a yikes. Because it's fucking arsenic. Yeah, it's bad. Um, And like I said, in, I think, 1867, the German person who I mentioned before (laughs) discovered formaldehyde. um, And, like, that was picking up in other countries, and eventually they kind of switched over to formaldehyde. Works just as well. Sounds good. Um, Even if it worked less well, I'd be like, thank you. I'm just slightly less murdery of of the poor embalmers. So one of the reasons, which is just, I didn't, I did, this came out of left field for me, that embalming became a trend, if we can call it that, in the United States, was because of Abraham Lincoln. Really? Yes. Um, So Smithsonian Magazine had this to say. Business was doing so well that the War Department, business meaning the business of embalming, that the War (laughs) Department was forced to issue General Order 39 to ensure only properly licensed embalmers could offer their services to mourners. Yikes. But the technique was limited to the war. To make embalming part of the American traditional funeral would require Abraham Lincoln, who you might say was an early adopter. Oh, no. Many prominent Civil War officers were embalmed, including the first casualty of the war, Colonel Elmer Ellsworth, who was laid in state in the East Room of the White House at Lincoln's request. Upon the death of Lincoln's 11-year-old son, Willie, in 1862, he had the boy's body embalmed. When the president was assassinated three years later, the same doctor embalmed Lincoln in preparation for a funeral train that per- paraded his body back to his final resting place in Springfield, Illinois. Oh, interesting. Which is where he almost went with the Donners, remember? Mm-hmm. I think it was somewhere else, but it was in the Midwest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you remember how crazy that was? It was fucking crazy. Nothing like this had happened for any president previously or since, and the funeral procession left an indelible effect on those who attended it. Most visitors waited in line for hours to parade by Lincoln's open casket, usually set up in a statehouse or rotunda after being unloaded from the train. This seems crazy to me. I know. Lincoln's appearance early in the trip was apparently so lifelike that mourners often reached out to touch his face, but the quality of preservation faded over the length of the three-week journey. William Cullen Bryant, editor of the New York Evening Post, remarked that after a lengthy viewing in Manhattan, the genial, kindly face of Abraham Lincoln became a ghastly shadow. Oh, no. That's upsetting. Uh, This was the first time most Americans saw an embalmed body, and it quickly became a national sensation. Wow. So that's the Abraham Lincoln part of it. Interesting. And that's all the history I want to talk about. Okay. That's it. There's probably more. I'm getting tired. Well, we made it to Lincoln. How can we top that? <laughs> Let's get gruesome. Do you want to get gruesome? Let's go gruesome today. How is a human body embalmed? So to start with, you have to hardcore verify that you have the right dead body and that they want to be involved. So you double, triple check yeah. all the tags and everything. <laughs> and then you place the cadaver chest up with their neck slightly inclined and examine for things like bruising, rigor mortis, any kind of trauma that might have happened to the body. Then you remove any clothes or jewelry and begin placing the body in position to be in the position that it will be in when it is embalmed. Um, Because you can't really 
shape the face or expression or the limbs once the body is, is embalmed. It's kind of like frozen in place that way. Interesting. Um, yeah. So they put like little caps under the eyelids to keep them closed and they usually wire the jaw shut mm-hmm. using wire um, and like seal the mouth using glue. And that sounds harsh, but that's what they do. Um, and this is known as setting the features. Mm-hmm. And there's certainly like an art form to creating natural expression during the embalming process and then later with grooming. Um, so at this point, the surgical embalming process begins. And it is a surgical process. Um, and the process usually contains four steps, four parts. The first is arterial embalming, which we're a little familiar with at this point. This is when embalming fluid, which is a combination of formaldehyde, water, several other chemicals, um, are pumped into the blood vessels through a centrifugal pump. So it's, you know, it's not like hand pumped in. Yeah. Um, it's used as a centrifugal, centrifugal pump. And as the um, pump is working, the embalmer massages the body to make sure the fluid is dispersed. Oh, um, interesting. And as the fluid is pumped into the arteries, blood is drained out. Oh. So that's that process. And then the second um, piece is cavity embalming. And this is a little, <laughs> it's a little graphic. So this is when the internal fluids of the body's cavity, it's usually like the torso, mm-hmm. are removed. Technically, they're aspirated, which means they're sucked out. So any fluid is sucked out and replaced with a very concentrated embalming fluid that's not diluted with water or anything. And this is done by uh, a tool called a trocar, which is basically, it looks like a long, thin pipe. Okay. But they basically, like, jab in and out Ooh. of the cavity. Yikes. That's what's happening. That's the truth. Um, and then, like, that same tool use, is used to disperse the fluid. So then they do some hypodermic embalming. And this is when the embalmer takes a hypodermic needle, which is like a thin needle with a hole in the middle, Mm -hmm. um, to inject embalming fluid deeper into the tissue of the body, the parts of the body that the arterial system isn't reaching. Okay. And then finally, surface embalming. And this is a different use of embalming fluids meant to preserve skin and features just on the surface. Surface embalming. (laughs) Makes sense. You get the picture. And also treat visible signs of trauma or decomposition that may have already occurred. Mm -hmm. So this whole process usually takes two to four hours for your standard embalming. Um... And sometimes more if the body is larger or if there's a great deal of trauma or disfigurement. Mm -hmm. And after that, the body is groomed in a variety of ways, which is also a very interesting sort of art form. As funeral workers are trained in how to apply makeup and shave faces and arrange hair in a way that looks natural and, for lack of a better word, lifelike. That's what they're going for. So that's what embalming is and what it was. (laughs) But Sam, why do we do this? If we're not being sent home from the battlefields on the wagon train, and if we don't need to have our bodies preserved for faraway funerals, why do you think someone would elect to be embalmed or choose to have their loved one embalmed? Yeah, I mean, when you put it like that, I really don't know. Like, in my brain, the answer is like, because everyone gets embalmed. Right. Because you just do it. Because it's something you do. Because, yeah, that's part of the process. As always, we're going to go back to our pals at the Seattle area Barton Funeral Home. Oh, uh, I have, hope I die in Seattle. <laughs> who had a little blurb about the three main options that they think people are embalmed. Number one is disinfection. Um, some people think that so most pathogens die soon after death, but it's possible that there could be mm-hmm. pathogens still. This is very debatable. Yeah. <laughs> if you're in a hygienic situation, that's not really an issue. Yeah. Um, the second purpose is preservation. Um, so the prevention of 
putrefaction or decomposition if you need to have, you know, a funeral later Mm -hmm. or you need to preserve the body for some reason. Yeah. Any host of reasons. And the third purpose is interesting. Restoration. Taking a body that has died and trying in some way to return it to a lifelike appearance. It's different than preservation. Interesting. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And they could be the same, it could be the same process happening, Uh but that could be a reason. Yeah, that's a different goal. It's a different goal. So that's something that we can rattle around in our heads. So there, there are some very legitimate reasons why someone might see this as the best choice or the only choice. Yeah. (laughs) Um, If it's important to you to have an open casket ceremony, if there's some reason there's going to be a long period between death and burial, if a body is being flown overseas, for example. Um, you know, this could make sense for a whole variety of reasons. It could be a great option for a lot of families, and it's a good option to have. But let's consider some alternative concepts about why we might have become so attached to embalming. The first thing to consider is that death and the process of it has mostly been taken away from families and put into the hands of hospitals and funeral homes. Death has been taken out of the family home, basically, in most circumstances. And I can understand why that is. The process of dying is upsetting, and it is difficult, no matter how you slice it, no matter what you do, and sometimes it can be very traumatizing. However, it is also a very, or I should say, the most natural process that has some very natural solutions. And there is no legal or health reason that families can't wash and prepare their own loved ones for burial, keep keep them in their homes for a short period of time. There's no reason that that can't happen. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is often seen as like too close, too taboo, too upsetting, too weird, what have you. But I mean, really, this is how many cultures did and continue to take care of their dead. And there's nothing wrong with confronting the realities of death and its aftermath. It's going to happen to everyone and everyone we know. Yeah. (laughs) And you and me, and it's going to happen. It's something we all have in common. Um, And it might be upsetting, and I hope it doesn't happen too soon, but it will be the right thing. Yeah. Because we're all supposed to die at some point. Yeah, exactly. Um, You know... Tuck Everlasting is an upsetting book. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone thinks it's romantic. It's not. It's not. Um, Tuck should not be everlasting. But <laughs> yeah, but I think I think there's something to be said also for confronting it because that can be helpful in promoting an understanding and an acceptance and, and maybe even a sense of closure in the process that is, you know, as natural as being born and needn't necessarily be traumatic. And by that I mean, in some cases... There's a lot of trauma in Western practices surrounding death that aren't necessarily found in cultures that are more hands-on with the realities of it. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk more about that later. I want to cut in with some some different facts. Ooh, There's more facts. Diff- different facts at you. Different opinions. They're the same, right? Yeah. <laughs> so bearing this in mind, we also have to grapple with the fact that death is now handled by outside organizations and people. So many of these funeral homes and morticians are great people doing great work. And some of them are, you know, good people who have also succumbed to kind of the trends yeah. <laughs> of later of recent years. However, oftentimes for, you know, various reasons, embalming is presented as the default rather than an option that is available to a family. And sometimes it can be inferred that it's required by law or that it's healthier 
or that the body can't be viewed if it's not in a state of embalmment. All of that is not true. You yeah. do not need to embalm a body to view it. Mm-hmm. You do not need to embalm a body to bury it. Like, none of that is the case. And a lot of times embalming won't even be necessary, but families just accept or think that this is what they should be doing and they move forward with it. I mean, and you can imagine why. Like, they don't know what's going on. The first thing that seems right to them, you might take because you're grieving and you just want it to be over and you obviously want what's best for your loved one, but it's a difficult situation. And this is to say nothing of the fact that it's extremely expensive. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's an expensive procedure. Um, So I think of it a lot like circumcision. Like, there's no medical need for it, but somehow we've all grown to think that there is some kind of need there. Wow. That's such an apt comparison. Yeah. I and never it feels about that, too trendy so to give up. And because it happened to our one family member, I guess we should just do it to grandma. And like all this stuff, like it's just wrapped up. And yes, it does seem like a perfect comparison. Wow. I never, that's so true. You know what I mean? Wow. Um, I, I do want to talk about circumcision, but it's very controversial. I did not think we would talk about circumcision in this episode. I honestly, if you had to I point did. to an episode, I thought we'd talk about circumcision. Any other one. Wasn't this one. No, not this one. No, I, I, it's something I'm very interested in talking about, but it's it's very, it's divisive. Did so. you watch the Netflix documentary, American Circumcision? Yes. You told me to. Thank God that you did. <laughs> um, I watched it on a plane once. But right, 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 right. So there's all that. Now let's get back what, to what I was saying about trauma surrounding death. Through modern funeral practices, we have gotten very far away from the natural process of death. Coffins and funeral plots often have elements which are meant to, like, deter moisture. Mm -hmm. Or coffins are advertised as, like, locking out dirt and bugs. When, like, the truth of the matter is, no matter how well-preserved, like, a body is going to decay. It's meant to do that. It's Mm -hmm. going to do that no matter what coffin you buy. Um... As all bodies before it have. And this really is straight from the mouth of Caitlin Dowdy now, who's just like, you know, totally tackling the field of like death positivity and natural deaths. And she's doing so much cool work. So all of this is really from her. Um, but like, it isn't a bad thing. Yeah. Like it's decay is not a bad thing. And an embalmed body is a body that has been chemically altered to fight against its natural process. It has been unnaturally frozen in time. Mm -hmm. And we need to consider when we make that choice, what ethical choices we are making with that. And and oftentimes seeing loved ones in this way, in this state, can be more upsetting to families than simply seeing the body for what it is. Yeah. A body. It's no, it's, you know, however you want to view that. It's going to be a different experience and might be a better experience for you, but it might not be. Yeah. (laughs) It's something to consider. So to wrap it up, there's nothing wrong with embalming itself. It's good that we have it as an option for a lot of different situations. But like circumcision, we need to think as a community about why we are so attached to it, why it is so comforting to us, why it is something that we've just kind of decided, yeah, that's the right thing. Um, And just release ourselves from the stigma surrounding natural death, natural decay, the actual circles. Like, and when I say natural, I mean dirt, bugs, natural. Like, that, that, I know I sound like a hippie, but I, 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 I'm just talking about it because thinking about it this way helps me think about death in in a different and better and kind of more wholesome way. Yeah. So I don't think it's a bad thing to consider. I think it's probably a pretty healthy thing to consider. 
Um, and one option might be better for us in the long one, in the long run, or better for our loved ones. So just something to consider, something to chew on. So interesting to think about because I right? really do like you. Never question. You don't like, think of about it. It's just a thing. Of course, that's what you do. But let's think about it. Let's think it. That's another real big theme of our podcast. Is like think about it. Just let's think about it. Yeah. Oh, man. Thank you so much. This was a long episode. This was a long episode, you guys. Thank you for sticking with us. Yeah, it was it was nuanced. Yes. And there's a lot of things in this. We're going to have to talk about all of it. You've got a lot to ruminate on after this app. And then you will email us at imhorrifiedpodcast at gmail.com. Yes. Or tweet at us. At imhorrifiedpod. Or, I don't know, call there's into the There's nothing else you can do. You can call Sam's personal cell phone number. Oh, my which is 518. <laughs> no. Um, call into the night sky and, you know, the stars might send down an answer and then tweet at us what the stars said. I'd appreciate that. I would also appreciate that. They've stopped taking my calls. <laughs> so. They're sick of you at this point. They're over it. Um, but yeah, lots to mull over. So go do that. But I mean, you've been in, in here for the long haul. So at least go watch some happy YouTube videos or something. Oh, please. Yes. Watch some like fat seals rolling around at an aquarium or mm-hmm. something. Watch oh, the new Cats trailer. Make me sad sometimes. No, we're not going to talk about that. Don't talk about that. Uh, until next week. We hope you stay horrified. Stay horrified. Stay horrified.